It's Systematic Saturday. Uh, thank you for joining me. Hi everyone, my name's Andre. I'm uh, not the usual host for the podcast. Uh, that would be my brother, Mike, uh, who's away in the States and uh, chilling out, hanging out with some good friends, doing whatever he does in the States. I don't know what he does. Um, and I'm sure there'll be Instagram posts to follow, but that's about it. I've asked him to name drop me with his Christian celebrity buddies, you know, just so I can feel like I'm there in some sort of vicarious way. But um, Mike's not here. It's me. It's Andre. I'm, for those of you who don't know, a pastor of Bethesda Baptist Church in Felixstowe in the UK. And um, general just theology nerd. And so we're here. Uh, to talk about what used to be six, it used to be smoking Saturday, which um, was controversial, I know. And then you get to 1689 Saturday, which is uh, you know less controversial. But I guess many of you won't be 1689ers, so uh, maybe still controversial, maybe less controversial than smoking. And then uh, now we're on systematic Saturday, which I think includes 1689. So you know you've got that scope, but also is thinking more about doctrine systematically. Do you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking there's no, you know, there's no exegetical day or there's no biblical theology day. They just don't have days that, you know, you can alliterate. So it's, um, it's a bit uneven, really. Anyway, that's just a thought. Um, so a couple of things have happened in our church, which is really exciting. Uh, that has to do with us. Uh, the first was, uh, and I'm not going to give any details here because obviously there's sensitive pastoral information, but um, but generally speaking, a, a very exciting thing happened in that we have, as a church, defined some doctrinal distinctives. Now, um, let me just give you a bit of background here because uh, we belong to an evangelical church we're a Baptist church. We are, in fact, a Reformed Baptist church, but we're not part of any Reformed Baptist affiliation or network or anything like that. We're part of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, and we're united by a common uh, creed, which is a nine-point statement of faith. It's really very minimal, and it's the same statement of faith that you'd find in the Evangelical Alliance or something like that. So basically, if you can't agree to those nine points, then it's very unlikely that you're actually a Christian. And so it's, it's, it, or you're definitely not an evangelical Christian, let's put it that way. Um, so we are, um, have always loved that and enjoyed that because it meant that we could accept into membership within our church uh, people we felt are genuine believers, even if they disagreed with us on some important things. And we enjoyed it because it meant we could have fellowship with other churches on that basis of knowing that they are sound and Christian uh, on all of the most important matters, um, even if they may be heterodox on some other issues or we disagree. So they could be Peter Baptist and we're Baptist. They could be charismatic and we're cessationist and so on and so forth. But we've always rejoiced in the essential unity that Christ is one for us. If you are one of his people, you belong to the church and the church should not do anything to undermine that. That's been the, the fundamental way that we roll. And um, however, um, a nine-point statement uh, is just, it seems, not quite enough 
to safeguard the unity of the church. Because on the one hand, it promotes unity because you're not dividing over non-essentials. On the other hand, there are many important beliefs that any local church will have or distinctives or views on, on various fundamental issues, uh, not fundamental, uh, views on various secondary issues that shape the way the church behaves. And so um, the, the whole problem is that you have folk coming into the church, you have very strong convictions about non-essential issues that also disagree with the heritage of the church or the eldership and that becomes a source of tension because they didn't know or didn't realize or didn't understand that their views were so opposed to the mainstream of the church. And so that's led to some confrontations um, and uh, some awkward pastoral issues where we've had to help people understand the difference between being able to speak freely and, and debate different theological ideas within the church to actually proselytizing uh, to a particular view, um, like dispensationalism or Arminianism or or, um, so, or or whatever it is, um, and so we've we've nailed down some doctrinal distinctives, and uh, the three doctrinal distinctives that we have is that we're reformed, um, and by that we essentially are saying soteriology, uh, our soteriology, uh, we're Calvinist, and we're covenantal. Those are the two things we've associated with being um, reformed. And, uh, arguably, you'd want to put in something about um, the principles of worship, uh, but we haven't done that, and that's a discussion for another time. Um, we've also said that we're Baptist uh, and congregational, so we don't baptize infants, and uh, we don't have a higher authority other than the local church governed according to the authority of the word uh, under the guidance of the elders. So um, this is the highest authority that there is, is the local church. And um, and yeah, we, as I said before, we don't baptize babies. So we've nailed those things to the mast. And in the reform section, we've also said we, we stand in the tradition of the reformed creed. So, uh, so uh, sorry, confessional, that was the other thing that we had for reformed. Um, confessional. So we're saying we affirm the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, also the Reformed Creeds, um, in particular the 1689. We stand in that tradition. And so it's been good to do that. I've, that's been bothering me for a long time, firmly convinced about confessional stuff. And that's been a great moment. And it has cost us um, in the sense that some folk have left the church over it. Some folk are not happy that we're introducing all these man-made documents. Rather, we should be governed by the Bible, not by any statement or creed. Um, this is not an unpopular view. Lots of people think like this. Lots of people think no creed but the Bible. I resisted every temptation to send snarky emails saying, well, the Jehovah's Witnesses are just down the road and they have no creed but the Bible. But I, thankfully, by God's grace, resisted the temptations to do that. Um, but the reality is that it just at a purely practical level, you need creeds. Um, you need to, to state your position. You, it doesn't mean that you have to require your position of every other Christian. But stating your position is essential. Um, I find this very difficult to manage as well because there is a local pastor's fraternal here where I'm at in Felixstowe. And there are a variety of views present. 
um, from Anglicans who are flying the LGBT flags and, and uh, gay pride flags outside of the church and are active in um, seeking to normalize homosexual behavior as part of the Christian life, all the way through to um, a kind of much more fundamentalist dispensational Baptist church down the road, uh, through to a Pentecostal church, through to a new one charismatic Anglican church, through to a, a mainline uh, Methodist church. And unless we are able to say what our convictions are, to actually clarify them, it's very difficult to move forward in any kind of meaningful relationship because you just don't know where the other people stand. Now, just because I'm a 1689 Baptist doesn't mean that I'm going to require of all other Christians to be 1689 Baptists, otherwise I won't have fellowship with them. But knowing that I'm a 1689 Baptist, I can, they can know what I think and I can know what they think and, and we can go forward in, in conversation there. So the whole thing about this is to encourage churches actually to think together and elders actually to think together about doing, um, having a creed doing some systematics together, defining doctrinal distinctives and doctrinal positions on things. It's been hugely beneficial. Uh, for us as an eldership, we've had fascinating discussions about what are the doctrinal distinctives that we think are, are most important for us. It's, it's a really healthy way for churches to begin to think about these kinds of things. Uh, because I love the 1689, but it's just got too much information in it. You, you know, most people... Um, will not read it and get a sense immediately of what those things mean. Even a nine-point confession people struggle with. So with something like the Westminster, the 1689, the Heidelberg, um, you know, people are going to struggle to get through all of it um, and come away with a meaningful sense of what kind of church is this. Uh, the other reason I think it's important to clarify doctrinal distinctives is because if you... Um, if you don't clarify doctrinal distinctives, what you end up with also is this kind of labeling of, of positions that nobody really understands. So I had an interesting conversation just the other day with someone in the church who was you know, unhappy and saying, we're tired of all this Calvinism in the pulpit. I, I mean, I'm a Calvinist. I, I, don't, I don't try and shake the label. However, I'm acutely aware that when most people use the word Calvinist, they really mean hyper-Calvinist, because the only place they've heard about Calvinism is from Arminian sources that are basically Calvinist bashing. And so they don't actually know the real distinctions. But the really funny thing is that when I was accused of being a Calvinist, um, I said, okay, so would you define your position as more semi-Pelagianism or Arminianism? To which, at, at which point the person responded by saying, well, I don't want to be labeled anything. Which I found hilarious because obviously she just labeled me a Calvinist. Um, and so, but yet was unwilling to be labeled as either semi-Pelagian or Arminian, which is, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. You're going to fit some position somewhere. Um, and so um, I, I think the, the thing is, if you don't define doctrines carefully and... Um, and in kind of nuanced ways, then all you're left with are these kinds of labels that are really prone to misunderstanding. So the labels are only helpful so long as everybody understands what they mean by them. You have to define your terms, and then once you've defined them, you can use the terms. But until you define the terms, they just become grenades that get launched over the fence. 
Um, and that's precisely what's been going on. So all this Calvinism, Arminianism, we defined our doctrinal position as Calvinist, but we never actually used the word Calvinist um, because we wanted to, people to understand what it actually was rather than just, uh, just throw the label around. Um, so all this is to say that systematics, that doctrine, is vitally, vitally important. It's important because if you're going to try and promote unity, which we should try and promote unity, and evangelicals walk a very fine line, we do. We walk a fine line between maintaining unity and contending for the faith. And it, it, it's a joyful and treacherous place to be in because if you stray too far to one side, you become a heretic. You leave orthodoxy. You stray too far the other direction and you end up kind of creating a second-class citizenship where some you're making genuine Christians feel as though they don't belong in the church. And both of those things are to be avoided. Uh, you, know, you don't want genuine Christians to feel like they're a subclass of Christian, and you don't want to be a heretic. You have to, you have to walk that treacherous, joyous, joyous path in between. Um, and so you have to separate the primary doctrines from the non-essential doctrines, you know, primary from secondary, the, the things that are essential to the faith, if you believe these, you're a Christian, to the things that if you don't believe these... Um, Sorry, to things that if you can agree to disagree and even strongly disagree, but yet still call the other person brother or sister at the end of the day. It's vital to have that kind of distinction. It's good and necessary. Um, however, you don't want to go too far the other way. And so um, you want to be clear on the secondary issues that you feel are important to the healthy Christian life and to a healthy church. And you can only do that if you've thought carefully about it. So my, my, my little encouragement to you as a Christian, look, to be honest, you're listening to this. I'm preaching to the choir, I know. Um, but you're listening to this and you're probably already committed to theology because this is quite a heavy theological podcast. I get it. Um, but it's really important to, to, to think clearly on the things that you are prepared to unite on, the things you're prepared to divide over. Um, I uh, recently read uh, The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind uh, by Carl Truman. And uh, again, it's a very stimulating little read. And he basically quotes uh, Mark Knoll and The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind as saying uh, that there is no mind, um, there is no evangelical mind, there's no unity, no agreement, no careful doctrinal engagement amongst evangelicals because the whole thing is evangelicalism um, is un is united really um, by its behavior, not by its beliefs so much. So you know the famous definition of evangelicalism by David Bevington, which is really used by most people to define evangelicalism um, today, is that it's those four marks: biblicism, a high regard regard for the Bible. Crucicentrism, a focus on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Conversionism, belief in the necessity of spiritual conversion. And activism, um, you know, getting active for the sake of the gospel, social action, that kind of thing. And uh, the problem with them is they don't actually nail down any, any convictions. And so, uh, you know, there are lots of problems um, where you have evangelicals grouped together who really have less in common than Protestants and Catholics, um, or you know, 
you you have open theists, Arminian dispensational open theists, lumped together with uh, Reformed Presbyterians, and and it just they're united maybe by a high view of Scripture, but really that is about it. And so um, Carl Truman makes the point that it's not so much that even the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't an evangelical mind. But he argues that it's, I'll just read it to you. The real scandal of the evangelical mind is currently is not that it lacks a mind, but that it lacks any agreed upon evangel. In other words, it's not just the engagement with theology, it's the gospel. What is the, what is the gospel? Um, the danger is if we don't define doctrinal things and we don't take time to define them, and we don't think carefully about our doctrinal positions and distinctives. The danger is not simply that we lose unity. The danger is that we lose the gospel. Um, the trouble with, with uh, defining the gospel only in terms of primary doctrines, because that, that could be the counter-argument. Look, we've got our nine-point statement of faith. You said it. Those are the essential things. Why not just leave it there? And the reason is because those nine-point statement of faith don't say anything about homosexuality, for example, or about gender, or about women in ministry. Um, they don't say anything about true gospel unity. Um, they, they, there are lots of things they don't, it, they, it doesn't talk about. And so um, is uh, whether or not someone accepts homosexuality as not a valid alternative lifestyle uh, to heterosexuality. Is that a primary or a secondary issue? And the answer is that it's a kind of, it's an ethical issue that draws upon primary issues. And so even though it's not strictly speaking one of the nine points, you've got to define some secondary issues that help you to navigate through a path like that. You have to navigate ethical issues. You have to uh, think carefully about them and define them. So you can't simply be a, a theological minimalist and say, I'm only worried about the nine most important doctrines. I'm not going to worry about anything else. Well, you know, to be honest, all of the major controversies, secondary controversies, whether it's about Israel or whether it's about the gifts or whether it's about, I mean, they all touch on and overlap with primary issues. And the reason why you have to be careful with your secondary issues is so that you can protect your primary issues. It becomes unhealthy when you're dividing over secondary issues um, in a way that you don't need to. You know? um, I, I wonder if actually it's worth, if we're talking about primary and secondary issues, I wonder if it's worth actually saying um, we, need to, uh, we need to think more carefully about um, uh, what was I going to say? And think more, think more carefully about about the importance of 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 secondary issues. So, or, or think about actually more categories. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think that, that's a better way of doing it. So, actually, rather than thinking about sort of just primary and secondary, I think maybe we need more categories here. So, maybe like four levels. Level one, essential stuff that's essential to Christianity. Doctrine of salvation, Trinity. Justification, Trinity. This is essential. I think scripture should be essential as well. 
But what about non-essential but vitally important? Level two, non-essential but vitally important. So stuff that, you know, in my opinion, stuff like Calvinism and Arminianism, that would fall into that because it has a massive impact on the way you understand the gospel, um, even if it's possible to be saved and not hold to one of those views. And covenant theology versus dispensational theology, I think is a massively important topic. It has a huge impact on the way that we understand God's plans and, and live out the Christian life. And so um, they are not essential, but they're vitally important for the health of a local church. Level three, not vitally important, but still significant for church life. So um, I think here of, of church governments on mode of baptism, um, I think the covenant theology behind whether you baptize children or not is important. I think the mode in and of itself isn't, so just to clarify. But the, um, the you know, things like church governance, I think, while I, I have my view on it, I think it's widely acknowledged that it's really not as clear as we once thought. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not important, though, because you have to run church somehow. Like practically, you need to study the Bible carefully to see what it says about church polity and church governance. And um, some of those systems work better than others, and some of them, I think, align more with biblical principles than others. And so you've got, they may not be something that is uh, vitally important to the healthy Christian life in one sense, in another sense, in the sense that they shape your understanding of the gospel, but in another sense, in, in that they have a huge impact on your experience of church life, uh, they are very important. And level four, you might get down to sort of matters of, of conscience. Usually this is to do with kind of um, ethical stuff, but it does have to do with some sort of <clears throat> uh, uh, theological stuff like supralapsarian, infralapsarian, that kind of that kind of thing. Um, but mainly you might talk about you know wearing a tie to church or drinking alcohol, having a Christmas tree, this kind of stuff. Um, really should be matters of, of conscience. And you want to throw in your ethical issues or your issues of the day somewhere into those four categories. But maybe that's more helpful than thinking of just simply primary and secondary. Maybe you want to say, no, actually, uh, essential unity. I'll call you a brother or sister on the primary issues. Um, but I'm not going to join the church that's Arminian or dispensational because I think it's going to have a huge impact. And I'm not going to be able to do that. Or, uh, but you might say, on the other hand, I'm willing to join a Presbyterian church because they got most of the other stuff right, and I'm happy to kind of disagree, agree to disagree on that one, and so on and so forth. So um, there you go. That's my two cents worth. Uh, secondary matters matter. Systematics matter. Matters. Uh, doctrinal distinctives matter. And uh, as churches, really, uh, it is the responsibility of the elders to lead the church through careful thinking on matters of doctrine for the sake of the glory of God and for a healthy Christian life. There's my two cents worth. I uh, hope you enjoyed Systematics Out there.